So this week I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat to Judy Moore. He's a former minister in um, the Liberian government, now with the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. He was previously Deputy Chief of Staff and Head of the Presidential Delivery Unit in President Ellen Sirleaf Johnson's government. He was there in office and played a critical role when those three, four West African nations had to contend with that Ebola outbreak. I'd be interested, as I'm sure is our audience, to understand what parallels he may have drawn between the current COVID pandemic and Ebola, and in particular, perhaps the post-COVID outlook, drawing any lessons from, from your experience, Judy, at the coalface with, with Ebola. So tell us a little bit about the Centre for Global Development for those of us who, who are not familiar with it and your role there. Sure. Uh, again, Marcus, thanks for having me. and I'm a pleasure to be here. Uh, the Center for Global Development is a DC-based think tank that is, its research focus is on improving development outcomes. And so it's been in DC for close to 20 years. And its initial target audience were the international financial institutions, IMF, World Bank, providing, I guess, critique of their policies, providing recommendations of how their policies could be improved, or providing recommendations of what could be done differently. And over time, the audience also expanded to include the governments of rich countries who were also spending money on development. Now, the Center for Global Development produces research and, and knowledge content for governments all across the world. I guess the strength of the Center for Global Development is that it brings rigorous economic analysis to development policy. I came to the Center for Global Development after my time in government. I came as a visiting fellow, have transitioned to a senior policy fellow. Our research focus there is largely financing African infrastructure with this argument that it's really, really difficult to build a modern economy that's growing without having a functional infrastructure, transport, power, telecoms. But because of Africa's current position in terms of resource generation, revenue generation, how do you pay for this infrastructure without bankrupting the country? And so uh, that's what I focused on, governance in general. As it turns out, you know, people are people who are going to spend money or people who are going to invest in a country or even citizens of the country who want to invest in the country do so if governance is predictable, if governance is, 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 um, is, is functional. And so those are the things that I tend to focus on here at the Center for Global Development. And of course, because of my experience in, in the Liberian government, when we faced a pandemic like this one, I've also done a lot of commentary on, on parallels between what we saw during the West African outbreak and what we're seeing now. Perhaps we could start with that, if you're happy to do so, Judy. Tell us a little bit about the parallels between your first-hand experience in dealing, not just with Ebola, but actually post-Ebola, and what lessons you can give us for our own situation. I should say for the audience, numbers, cases are still on the rise in Africa. I think I'm correct in saying that the highest cases are to be found in South Africa and, and a couple of North African countries at the moment. I think it's Egypt and Algeria. I need to check on that and maybe the situation will have changed by next week when this goes out. Um, we had a notable death in Burundi. Government announced that that was a heart attack but speculation because wife, um, the president's wife has been flown over to Kenya to receive treatment for 
COVID. That, but anyway, I'm digressing. Tell us about your experience and what lessons you can draw from that experience. Sure, quickly. And just before that, just to comment on what you just said, mm-hmm. I think a part of the the numbers we've seen and how high the numbers are, especially in the countries we've seen them, like uh, South Africa and, and, and Egypt, is also those are countries that have significant connection to the outside world in terms of backward and um, forward movement and significant in terms of uh, tourism. Uh, in fact, in, in Egypt, the first were in tourist destinations. That's what we first saw it. But so the, the first difference is that in the West African outbreak, it was a localized outbreak. At most, it was three countries and then the single case in Nigeria, uh, index case in Nigeria that affected um, some healthcare workers. So because of that, it was sort of restricted and limited to these few countries. What we have now is global. Almost every country on the continent has a case and almost every country in the world is dealing with something um, with these problems. So in 2014, there was still significant movement. People were traveling. Doctors could fly in to come in and assist. You know, and nurses could fly in to come and assist. Now, international travel is halted. So in terms of the kind of assistance that's available to countries in terms of being able to do this, it's a little harder because every country, even in places where help would have come from, are dealing with this. In the, the West African outbreak, it took us a while. There was a learning curve. You see, one has to remember that most of the three countries, the, the health system was built to provide basic health care. And healthcare professionals are trained so that, you know, supposedly when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. And so when people first began to present with symptoms, and those symptoms mimic locally, there's diseases that occur frequently, like malaria like typhoid. So because doctors were not looking for anything new, it wasn't for a while before we realized what was happening. And then the second thing was, once we realized that it was something different, our testing capacity was completely non-existent. I mean, it was taking us between nine to 12 days to get back results. And in nine to 12 days, people became affected by it. So in the, the learning curve was pretty steep. But eventually, I think the three countries, especially Liberia, with the assistance of external partners, began to respond in that classic public health way. And what was, you have to test, you have to trace, because once you tested people, then you had to trace their contacts. And when you found them, and if they were symptomatic, you had to isolate them and you had to treat them. So you test, trace, and treat. And I think public health, especially for infectious disease outbreaks, that's what's happened. And I think because of that experience in West Africa, almost every single country in Africa in the first few stage, in the, in the beginning stages of the outbreak, performed admirably. I mean, they shut down their borders at great economic costs. We're talking about countries where sometimes between 60 to 80 percent of the country is rural to 80% of the economy is informal, and most of the informal economy lives off the consumption of the small piece of the formal economy. And when you shut down the formal economy, it meant that demand dried up for the services and goods that the informal economy provided. And so the cost to African governments of shutting down was significantly higher than their counterparts elsewhere in the world, and they did. And um, the WHO, in its response, 
in the, the West African outbreak left a lot to be desired. And there was a significant amount of reform around the WHO. And in this, the WHO has performed really, really well in terms of doing assessments and evaluation of, of public health systems. And in fact, the first set of tests available to most of the countries on the continent were provided by the WHO. So I think the Ebola experience in West Africa didn't simply prepare those three countries to deal with an outbreak that would come after. It also helped the entire continent in terms of its preparation for another one. And I think we've seen that. I mean, places like uh, Uganda, which has also had issues responding to Ebola, they didn't even have a single case when they reduced public gatherings to 10 or less. And within, you know, days of receiving the first case, they shut their borders. And so I think of all the lessons that could have been learned from the Ebola outbreak, I think most African countries uh, learned them and applied them. The only lesson I think they didn't learn is that you know, it's this excessive use of force in enforcing quarantines. I mean, within days of lockdowns going into effect, we, we saw people were being shot, people were being killed. I mean, there's still a case in South Africa of the South African Defense Force beating a man to death. I mean, it's like... And we made the same mistake in Liberia. We, we attempted to quarantine people geographically, close down entire areas, and it just didn't work. And for public health outbreaks like this one, without uh, a therapeutic uh, response, without a therapeutic medical countermeasure, one depends on the, the, the cooperation of the community. It has to be a community-based response in a case where the government is actually using excessive force undermines that trust between the community and, and, and the government. It's interesting you, you reference that, Judy. We're obviously very aware, there's very few people in the world not aware today of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement in the wake of, of that brutal murder in, in the US. We featured just recently in our newsletter the instances of police brutality during lockdowns in various African countries. One of the things that we focused our readers on was the very fact that this is not necessarily seen as an aberration by many African governments. In fact, I hesitate to say this, but it's even encouraged in some cases. What do we think could be the legacy of the Black Lives Matter movement that has been just so, um, so powerful in the States, but, but in European nations as well? I'm British, as you know, and People have been tearing down statues of slave owners over the last couple of days. Do we think that there's lessons and a bearing how we contend with with our police forces on the continent? Yeah, it's uh, you know I, I want to be hopeful, but I, I, I hesitate in terms of the long term positive impact that this would have with how the security the relationship between African publics and security services. I follow a Kenyan writer who just tweeted that there were two protests basically yesterday, either yesterday or the day before, in Nairobi. One of them was largely expatriates that went to the U.S. Embassy. The other was largely local Kenyans. Well, guess which one got tear gas and beaten up? So for some reason, I think what happens here in the African-American community in the U.S. is sort of similar to what happens across the continent. So we have governments that are really, really under-resourced and do very, very little spending on social services. 
do very, very little spending on providing crucial services for their people. And in instances when people express dissent and discontent with that, the way those services, the way those responses come is by sending armed men. And it's the same thing that happens here in the U.S. In predominantly African-American communities, um, there's been lack of investment and lack of resources. And when society breaks down because of that, they usually send in the police. Right? And so you, you see that similarity in governments that underspend in these communities. And then when people in those, when the predictable dysfunction that comes from underspending in the services happens, you send in people with guns to be able to do it. So I'm hopeful. I, you know, I want to be hopeful, but it's hard. And for me, that's why I was a bit uncomfortable with hearing official Africa get involved in the George Floyd issue. The president of Ghana made a comment. The head of the African Union made a comment. There is not a single African government that has said anything about a South African man who was beaten to death. You know, that's not, last was it last year or a year before, during a protest in Togo, a high-ranking military official, there was a video of him leaning outside his vehicle and opening fire on young men who were doing that. There was not a peep from Ghana. So this idea that somehow because it's happening in America and it's unfashionable, African governments should get involved in it when the same thing happens at home. And the thing is, George Floyd will get a measure of justice. Right. There will be justice because of that. There will be reform yeah. because the system that allows that. There are thousands of people who've been killed, extrajudicial killed by security forces in Africa who will find no justice at all. I mean, all of, I think it was like 2019 or 2018, Nigerian, young Nigerian men and women were complaining on Twitter and social media platforms everywhere about SARS, that unit of the Nigerian police that was arresting, kidnapping, torturing, and in some instances, killing them. So I think the value of an African life or the value of a Black life is not inherent in who takes it. Like a Black life doesn't become valuable because it's a white person or a racist person who takes it. Nothing makes it simply because the person taking that life is Black for some reason is acceptable. So my, my hope is that in the long term, that we begin to see this, not just through the lenses of racism, but through the lenses of an elite that seems aloof to the needs of their people. And when those people express any discontent, send uh, armed men to, to, to quell that. I wanted to segue, it may seem a little unrelated, but I think there is a correlation here, to the response of African governments to some of the discrimination meted out against African citizens in China. Um, just last month. What were your views about the official response? And then perhaps did you take any note of unofficial responses, how ordinary African citizens and in particular young Africans on the web responded? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the phenomenon to watch is the, the, the rise of netizens, the rise of Africans online as a potent social political force. And I think a lot of the responses, the official responses we saw out of African government was because of the outrage of Africans online that absent that outrage and activism from Africans. I don't know. It seems that governments would have resorted to the same thing to be able to say, well, what did they do? They had to have done something. 
And I think also it's the same thing that happened in the case of George Floyd, the presence of videos, the ability for us to be able to see those videos. And I think for most people in Africa, you either have a relative or know someone who's been to China or who's in China. And there was a visceral response to that because it was like, but for the grace of God, there go I or my relative. And I think that really, really angered uh, people. And Marcus, you know, we live in a world where, you know, whether it's acknowledged or not, there is sort of a pyramid of the value of lives. And it's this narrative of racial superiority that has, it's sort of like a cancer has just eroded the morality of the human experience to such an extent that based on the color of a person's skin, they are more valuable than others. And, and in that twisted pyramid of the value, black people are sort of seen as occupying the base of that. I mean, there are stories everywhere where anti-black animals in, in India, in Lebanon, in Latin America, and everywhere. And that, you know, just before the incidents occurred in China, the, the Chinese government sort of published this law, or it was, I guess, to get feedback on this law of allowing people to have permanent residence in China, sort of like a residence thing. And the response of ordinary Chinese online to the mere idea that Africans would be allowed to live in China illegally, it was, I mean, all of the insane things, racist things you've ever heard, those things came out. African students who studied in China would tell you what their experience has been in terms of how racist uh, attitudes were toward them. So in terms of the official Chinese government, the, the, the Chinese government itself officially has done everything it can to promote this idea of brotherly love and, and brotherly relationship with, with, with Africans. And China has been engaged on the continent for a very long time. I mean, we go back as far as late 60s, early 70s, Tazara, a rail between Tanzania and Zambia, and the Chinese have been there and have continued to present themselves as brothers in terms of brothers, in terms of the uh, official. But, but Chinese citizens are, have themselves been infected by this thing, this idea of, of, of superiority. And so I, I think as it is in the past, as it has been in the past, I think if there hadn't been that outrage, not just from Africans on the continent, but Africans in the diaspora, whether they were in Europe, in America, in Australia, wherever they were, who got really incensed over this. And the thing is, it came on the heel of Africans defending China against, against the virus being called you know, a Chinese virus. There was an exchange between current U.S. ambassador to Kenya and Kenyans, when he referred to it as Chinese, and Kenyans were saying to him, this is racist, you can't do this, you're the ambassador. And so for many Africans, it came as a surprise, but also as a disappointment that Africans were then being you know, treated that way as if they were vectors of this disease in, uh, in China. And the question came to be, oh, there's, there are Africans who are living in China, and they're living there sort of illegally. They're, they're past, their visas have expired and, 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 and they're not accounted for. And because they're not accounted for, it's hard for them to be traced and tracked in response to this. And this is why this was done. But then comes the question of, I mean, we don't know since nobody has actually counted them, but there, there are projections of close to a million Chinese who are living on the continent. In a lot of instances, African governments have been leaned on by their Chinese embassies to be sort of lax in terms of the enforcement there. And it's not as if the Chinese people who are living on the continent are the most well-behaved. 
I mean, there's stories of people being arrested for illegal mining in in uh, in, in Ghana, they, you know, illegal fishing off the coast of Africa. So it's not as if Africans living in China are doing something that is completely beyond the pale that, you know, Chinese living on the continent are not doing. And so, again, because I think both African governments and the Chinese were official Africa, wanted to pivot away from that quickly. I mean, we have this issue with the first recession in 25 years. We had the economic fallout of COVID-19. And most African governments are debtors to China. China is the leading bilateral creditor. And because they they wanted to be able to continue to have that conversation with China, it wasn't in their interest to continue to belabor this point. But I don't think for African publics, I don't think they were ready to walk away from the conversation. And I think, you know, because China's engagement with Africa is largely government to government, there isn't a lot of relationship between China and African publics. So, for example, whether it's the UK or other European countries or the US, there are other connections outside official government connections, right? You know, but that with China is, in fact, it is only during this outbreak that we've seen the rise of Chinese, wealthy Chinese into philanthropy as the European, American, and Japanese counterparts have done before. So, you know, Tencent, the owner of the CEO and owner of Tencent, or Jack Ma, the foundations doing philanthropy in that way. Before that, the, the most engagement between China and Africa has always come through government channels. And so because of that, in instances where China was seen as sort of supporting governments that were oppressive of their people, then whatever suspicion people had toward the government extended to China. And I think also for African publics, China is just the most recent in the line of external actors coming on the continent. And I think there's a sort of a reflexive suspicion of the intentions of external actors. And I don't think the incident that happened in Guangzhou helped in terms of China's relationship with African publics. Yes. I haven't been watching closely enough to know if there's been any citizenship retaliation on the African continent. I've seen the protests at embassies. I think that was last month now, but I think I'll make the effort to try and gauge barometer of public sentiment towards China and Chinese enterprises on the continent in particular. I think we'll find out later how long-term the damage is. I don't know how it is at the moment, but I think, honestly, think that China's, you know, medical diplomacy, mask diplomacy, would have had significant impact if it hadn't been for that. But I think now that they, but we'll, we'll find out from service. But my, my guess is that the result will be mixed. And then we had just recently China announced debt repayment holiday. You referred to that. China, the largest bilateral creditor to most African nations. Obviously, many cards China still holds, irrespective of the tension that was brought about by those events that you just described. You sit in a global think tank based in in D.C. How much do you think about geopolitics and implications of this crisis for how the world engages with African nations and the continent as a whole? Have things changed? Have things shifted over the course of the last three months? So a a good number of my colleagues uh, are researchers who focus on different aspects of that, whether it's the debt question, whether it's the official development aid question. And I think first we have to just go back a little bit, uh, Marcus, that before COVID-19, the biggest thing on our minds that we were talking about was the wrapping up of a trade war between China and the United States that affected the entire world. In fact, IMF and World Bank Productions continue to talk about 
a hovering uncertainty in international trade because of that. And then COVID-19 came. And that trade war ultimately had an effect in terms of depressing global growth and the global economy. And, and what we saw beyond the trade war, the trade war was, I guess, the most public expression, but there was a rise in nativism. There was a rise in countries becoming really insular. And so, especially the Trump administration, whose primary instinct has been to eschew multilateralism, and sort of, it almost seemed as if it were intentionally trying to undercut the multilateral system. And so, for, for a weak player in a multilateral system, which Africa is, a breakdown of the multilateral system works to Africa's disadvantage, as we're seeing with the U.S. attempting to withdraw from the WHO and refusing to provide money for the WHO. As far as the U.K. is concerned, Japan or Korea are concerned. What the WHO does doesn't really affect them. I mean, they're donors, they're net contributors to the WHO. Most of the countries in Africa are net recipients of the WHO's work and services. And so for, for them, the breakdown of the multilateral system, as we've been seeing, is at a detriment to most African countries. So on the question of debt, African countries are caught in this situation. I mean, a path that's available to them is just default. I mean, Argentina has done it now like nine times. <laughs> and, and so when it comes to a place where the, the country is forced to decide whether it's going to pay for PPEs, or service debt, whether it's going to isolate people and take care and, and, and respond to the medical condition, or to respond to the condition of people who have been affected by the outbreak or pay debt, make countries are going to get to a point where the only possible way out might be for them to default. So there's that option. But we've also seen that during this outbreak, you uh, bond, euro bonds, uh, sovereign bonds that have been delivering double digits in terms of the interest have almost been all African. And mm. so for some reason, because of the slowdown, there's still an appetite for African debt. And so African finance ministers who want to re retain access to international financial markets would definitely be against defaulting on loans or be clamoring for blanket debt waiver. Mm. So I think they're in this position and China is such a massive player because like I said, it's the largest bilateral creditor. There is no history of China actually participating in what is the Paris Club or multilateral debt programs. China likes to do things bilaterally. And throughout this entire process, China has been saying that they will continue to do it on a case-by-case -case basis. So on the question of the seven to seven countries whose debt might be, debt payments and servicing might be suspended, China has been saying that for a while now, and there's still no details of what that means. So I think whether we like it or not, the Chinese have not done this traditionally and they have shown no inclination to do anything multilaterally. More than likely, African countries are going to have to negotiate with China on a case-by-case -case basis. What I have noted before was even if there's not a multilateral engagement with China, there is nothing preventing African countries from conferring with each other and establishing common talking points in the negotiation with China. China cannot stop them from doing that, sort of, you know, create uh, sort of a floor in terms of the terms of what agreement you're going to be able to have with China. And then if Kenya is engaged with China at the moment and Liberia is going to a conversation with China, there's nothing preventing the Liberian finance minister from calling his Kenyan counterpart to say what has worked and what hasn't, right? And so 
think that's the way, that's what it's going to be bilateral and it's going to be a case-by-case basis where, where China will continue to have such a big role. And it's, of course, as you point out, to Africa's advantage if finance ministers exchange, share information and strengthen their elbows for that, for that negotiation, that bilateral negotiation with China. Mm-hmm. I think you've known me for some years. You know I'm an optimist. Um, yes, yes. I was speaking with one of my colleagues in Lagos yesterday. We're slightly confounded, and pleasantly so, by actually the fact that cases of COVID-19 and qualities in particular have not been, and I've got my fingers crossed as we speak, have not been quite as prolific as we had feared. Now, they're still rising. We don't know that we're going to avoid the sort of situation has occurred in North America, South America now, Europe before that. But in the event that we do, in the event that we come out of this pandemic relatively unscathed, and there are a lot of ifs and buts and unknowns there, but you can see a situation in which Africa emerges strong and attractive to commercial investors who, as you rightly point out a little earlier, are seeking yields and their domestic host markets don't offer them those with record low interest rates and no growth. In that sort of scenario, you can see the basis for a strong recovery. Now, that assumes that Africa is not linked to the rest of the world. And of course, we know that part of the legacy of the push for globalization over the last 20 years is that Africa is very much more interconnected with the rest of the world. So it's, it's by no means a, a sort of black and white picture. But in that scenario, we thank goodness that we have educated, smart ministers of finance uh, in the way that you just referenced. People like Kenneth Oriata in Accra, who are approaching this with their eyes wide open and with a view on the long term in a way that perhaps a previous generation, we couldn't rely on that. And when you look at the caliber of Trevor Manuel Ngozi, who I understand is, is a candidate for the WTO leadership at the moment, Tijan Tian, I forget the fourth in the um, quadrette of the AU has set up, it gives one hope. And, and it really does sort of underline the case for collaboration uh, in the way that you've just suggested over debt negotiations. Absolutely. But I think what happens then, it brings us back to the topic you raised earlier, which is the AFC-CFTA. So if Africa were to emerge largely unscathed by this, Africa would still face a world with significant demand destruction. It would still face a global economy where shutdowns are still happening elsewhere. And so, I mean, basically, that's what's happening to Taiwan. That's what's happening to New Zealand. You, you emerge from this ready to engage, but you're facing a world that isn't ready, which is why I think everything that has happened over the last two years, but especially during this outbreak, has validated Africa's instinct of integration and integrating its economies. So normally what happens is that if there is a rupture in global value chains, nations try to look inward to be able to replace it. But in most places in Africa, there's so little in terms of manufacturing capacity, there's no inward to look to, which forces us to look to regional value chains. When we turn regional, as we're trying to do with the AFCTA, we're gonna run into two problems. And the first one, both of them have to do with, it was a single problem with two strains, and it's infrastructure, especially in terms of our transport links. 
So you have the issue of the hard infrastructure, which is the availability of roads, the availability of rail power, but then you have issues with the soft infrastructure, where you have border procedures and, and the freedom and the ease with which goods can move across land borders. I mean, as we speak, there is still no overland trade between West and Southern Africa, West and Eastern Africa. Right? So even as we come out of this, I think, yes, we should continue to go in this direction, but I believe that there are things that we can begin to do. First of all, just improving customs control at borders would increase the amount of trade that happens. We have trucks lined up for miles at the border because of weak systems in terms of allowing them to be able to go back and forth. If we can solve that problem, we will increase inter-Africa trade. And so I think how we come out of this crisis should continue to strengthen our resolve to connect our economies in the ways that we've always envisioned and that which we embarked on with the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. I would say, though, that as hopeful as I am, and I know, you know, that you are, uh, you, you are an eternal optimist about the future of this continent and where it can go and what is possible. But I also think we have to admit that currently we have eight regional economic communities. And on paper, the continent is significantly integrated in terms of its economy. Simply because we're trying to make those eight regional economic communities one doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. So I think that President Paul Kagame used his time as chair of the African, uh, the African Union. He used it really well. And with simply that force of personality, forced the AFCTA to the point where it is now. And, and you know, you have to applaud him for that. The hope is that, you know, whether it's Ramaphosa or whoever comes after him, each head decides, like, over my one year, I'm going to get it to this point. And we set these benchmarks of what we're going to try to achieve. Look, looking at the European project, this is a multi-decade thing, and it has to occur in phases. But I believe there are things that we can do right now at the moment, especially on the part of the soft infrastructure that allows us to trade better with each other, even when this virus, the viral outbreak ends. Here, here, Judith. I couldn't agree more with you. Um, funnily enough, we were talking on this podcast just a couple of weeks ago about the, the critical role of truck drivers and um, uh, transportation. I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you from Botswana, a landlocked country. We depend on, um, on those truck drivers bringing um, uh, goods to us. Um, and um, it's... Um, it's 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 really tough for them, and we're we're not making it easy. Um, uh, so already, I don't think much initiative has been taken to ensure that um, you know cabs can delink from their from their cargo and pass it on to another cargo, so that truck drivers don't actually have to drive into another country. But solutions yeah. like that are very much in demand because otherwise, there's a real risk that truck drivers are stigmatized as well. In some cases, carrying the virus from one country to another. I've taken up more than the time we had allocated. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have spoken with you. Thank you.